All right, this morning we are starting uh, and we are continuing our series on the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, so you can pull out a phone or an iPad or whatever it is and uh, pull that up. And today I want to talk to you about rest. I want to talk to you about rest. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Like just the concept of rest, like sleep, except for during my sermon, amen, but... But sleep, rest, I love this idea of rest. Last night we were at a wedding late last night up in Appleton, Wisconsin, and then we got a hotel here in Kenosha so we wouldn't have to go back down to Chicago. And we got to our hotel after a long day, a lot of driving in a car that I do not own. Thank you, family over there. Anyways, because my car is broken down, and, and, and so... We got to the hotel, and, and you know, when, when a day is complete and when the task is done, what do you want to do? You just want to sleep. You want to rest. Of course, we had somebody next door to us that was not in the mood of resting last night, so we had to pray against the devil because he was trying to ruin our rest. There's different kinds of rest. There's physical rest. Studies show that most Americans don't get enough sleep in their life. That's a fact, and it causes problems. But then there's also the issue of practical rest. And practical rest is when you have, uh, I don't know, a task that you need to accomplish or a problem that needs to be solved. And rest means that you get to the place where you accomplish the task and you go, ah, it's that feeling of it's done, it's finished, it's complete. Or the problem is solved. I know my, my car broke down and the engine's destroyed, right? And, and I've been waiting for weeks to find out if the warranty company will cover $6,000 of repairs. Believe me, I was not resting in this situation. But I just got news this last week and the warranty company says, we will cover $6,000 of work. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a praise. Hallelujah. And you know what I did? I went, oh. I mean, just the burden, just the rest that just kind of filled my life that's done. That problem is solved, rest. But of course, there's spiritual rest, which is the most important kind of rest. Spiritual rest means that our alienation with God has been solved. Spiritual rest means that we've been reconciled with God and we're confident that our problem of trying to live life without God is now solved, ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we say as a church is that the restlessness of our culture is not because of a lack of sleep. The restlessness in our culture is because people are alienated from God. People need peace with God. And our ministry is ultimately asking everybody, have you made your peace with God? Because until you do, it doesn't matter how much sleep you get, how many tasks you accomplish, or what mountains you climb, or what houses you build, or what cars you have that never break down. If you do not have peace with God, you will not have peace in your life. And that's why Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and following, he said this, Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I mean, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm pretty sure Jesus is not talking about sleep. Jesus is talking about our relationship with God. Jesus is talking about soul rest, spiritual rest, rest that can get you through the sleepless nights, rest that can get you through a world of problems, rest that will be with you when you go through tribulation and the world just absolutely bombards you with the napalm of bad circumstances. If you have rest with God and peace with God, you will make it. You will survive because you've made your peace with God. But the question is, how can I find rest in Jesus? How do I rest? How do I find this soul rest in Jesus? And, and that's why these stories and these events and narratives in the Bible give us a story so that we might be inspired, we might learn how to come to Jesus as our Redeemer. And I believe that's one of the reasons why Ruth is in the Bible. Because when we come to Ruth chapter 3, the value of Ruth chapter 3 is this. It tells us where and how we can find rest in our Redeemer. When we come back to Ruth chapter 3, you know, it's, it's like the way to read Ruth is through the eyes and through the experience of Naomi, this widowed woman. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's been grieving. She's bitter and empty in chapter 1, but by the end of chapter 2, she's filled with hope. And the reason why she's filled with hope is because she realizes that there is a redeemer, a relative, who can redeem her and Ruth and, and their whole circumstance, who can give them rest. In the Old Testament, it was called a kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And the idea of a kinsman redeemer is a relative, if if a relative's brother died, left a childless widow, uh, the brother would come and redeem her and marry her and make sure that she was able to have babies. And this was kind of God's welfare program for his people. It protected women in particular. And Naomi's bitter because they have no men to protect them. They, they, it's like a Jane Austen movie, man. Like there's no aristocrats to take care of them. You know what I'm saying? And, and so she's bitter. She's empty. But then when she sees Boaz, she says, oh, my gosh, we've got a relative. We've got a kinsman redeemer who can redeem our whole situation and make sure that we never go hungry again and also make sure that the name of Elimelech will go on forever. So when we come to Ruth chapter 3, man, it's like Naomi starts, I mean, she gets up out of bed. I mean, at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2, it's like she's got bed head. She won't pull herself out of bed, you know what I mean, because she's so depressed. But in, 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 in Ruth chapter 3, man, she's like alive. She combs her hair. She puts on makeup, and she starts actively engaging in life again because she's found this Redeemer. And her instructions in Ruth chapter 3 are to Ruth. And how to go and find rest in Boaz, the Redeemer. So we pick it up in Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And let's read this story. And we ask ourselves, you know, how can I find rest in my Redeemer? Well, the first thing is we need to rest in the righteousness of our Redeemer. 
Let's look at this from Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, that is, Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. Sorry, camera people, let me just get water. The camera people are mad right now. I'm sorry, camera people. I'm back up. I'm sorry. I just needed my water. We love this. Like, Naomi's awesome. You, you see how she's like, she's like, all right, man. Here's what we're going to do. And we're so excited that Naomi's doing better because we want Naomi to do good. We want Naomi to be okay. And she is. But the problem is, is that Naomi's plan is crazy. Everybody say crazy. It's a crazy plan. Because she knows that Boaz can redeem Ruth, and she tells Ruth, listen, here's what you need to do. I want you to go in the night. I want you to put on some perfume, put on some makeup, put on some great clothes, the best clothes you got. And I want you to go in the night to the threshing room floor and lay at the feet of Boaz. And obviously her plan is to make sure that Boaz will end up redeeming Ruth. You say, why is that a crazy plan? Well, if you had a daughter, which I have four, can I get a hallelujah? And if you wanted your daughter to find a Christian man who doesn't drink and has a job, can I get a hallelujah? You want to marry my daughter? No whiskey, a job, and you love Jesus. But my, my, my solution to them finding this particular young man is not to go to their college dormitory at night and to lay at their feet. No! I have daughters here now. Don't do that, girls. This is not a prescription for how to find a husband. Can I get a hallelujah? No, it's a description. And when you begin to learn the historical context of Ruth and the threshing room floor, you really begin to question Naomi's sanity because what would happen in those days is during harvest, all the men would go and harvest all day long and they would just get their grain and they would bring it to the threshing room floor and create these big piles of grain. And then what they would do is they would celebrate and they would eat and they would drink, not to drunkenness, but maybe to a little bit of a buzz. Can I get an amen? Anyways, and, and, they, and they would be in this threshing room floor uh, barn-like place or whatever and then what they would do is they would sleep because they don't want thieves stealing their grain but what would happen especially in the time of judges when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes the local prostitutes would come at night they would draw themselves up to the men and they would ply their trade it's like dude like 
Naomi, it's like you're making Ruth. I mean, when you first read it, you're like, you're making Ruth seem like she's like a, like a prostitute. Not cool. And some scholars and commentaries, by the way, they think that that's exactly what Ruth did. That what we have is a sexual liaison, a, 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 a time when, when she actually seduces Boaz to force him into a place to where he has to redeem her. But you see, that's not it at all. Because when you read the rest of the story, you see that there's nothing but worthiness and honor. What is Naomi doing? This is, this is significant because what is she doing? Here's what she's doing. She's saying, I believe that Boaz is different than any other redeemer in the world. Can I get an amen? That there's no one like Boaz. I believe that, that he is unlike every man in the time of Judges. In fact, I believe that Boaz is righteous and that his righteousness will be proven in the night because a man's righteousness is always proven in the night. Because your character and your integrity is not based on what you say. It's what you do when no one is looking. And Naomi is saying, I believe, me, I believe Boaz is a righteous redeemer. Unlike any redeemer in the world. I believe he's been tempted in all ways, yet he is without sin. And I am placing all of my faith in the fact that that's the kind of redeemer he is. And not only that, but she placing her faith in the idea that this righteous redeemer is willing to redeem an unrighteous Moabite woman. Put on your best clothes, Ruth. Go to that threshing floor and see if Boaz is not the man we think he is. Risk everything trusting that this redeemer is exactly who he is and that his righteousness and his righteousness alone will save us and give us a resting place for our lives. Boaz, of course, is a picture of our own redeemer. Jesus is our redeemer, isn't he? And we look at Jesus and we say, there is no other name by which a person can be saved. There is no one like him. Only Jesus is God in the flesh. Only Jesus is truly God and truly man. And only Jesus is a complete human being who fulfilled the righteous demands of God's law. No one else did it. And only Jesus is the one who was willing to pay the price and to die for our sins and defeat death. Only Jesus is righteous. And only Jesus is righteous enough to have mercy on me, an unrighteous, sinful man. We rest in his righteousness. We put all of our hope in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we go to him in the night. And we go to him on the threshing room floor. And we give him our life and we lay our life at his feet. That's, that's the gospel. Do you remember, man, do you remember, do you remember the story? And maybe you're just learning the Bible. I'll tell you, it's a great story in the Bible, really great. 
Mark chapter 5, man, and there's this, there's this woman, and she's got like this, this bloody discharge. I mean, you're talking about the most incredibly um, unflattering physical illness you could have as a woman in the time of Jesus. And because of her bloody discharge and her sickness, she was considered unclean by everybody. No one would let her go to temple. No one would let her go to sacred spaces. No one would let her do anything. In fact, everyone said, ooh, stay away from her. She is unclean. And you remember Jesus was walking along, and he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. And that woman went through the crowds that couldn't stand her. Like, oh gosh, and there's all these crowds, and she's running through those crowds, and they're, they're like, oh, gross. That's, she's so unclean. She's so gross. And, and she's just burrowing through those crowds. And she gets to the point to where she goes underneath the crowds, and she grabs the garment of Jesus. Do you remember that? And it says that power left Jesus and healed her of her uncleanness. And remember, Jesus is like, what happened? I don't know if you remember that story, because everybody gets confused about that, because I thought he was God, you know. Ah, but he was truly man, too. He's like, how did that power leave my body? Who has been healed? And he looks around, and he sees her down there, and he recognizes that it's her that's done this. And he says to her, woman, your faith has made you well. She had ruined everything. Because she believed that Jesus was righteous and that he was willing to heal her and save her. And Jesus says, that is what rest is. You know what, you know what rest is? It's faith. And faith is, I am not worthy. I am empty. I have nothing to offer to God. But I believe that Jesus will save me anyways, heal me, and transform my life. That's resting in Jesus. That's resting in Jesus. Rest. You know, what's our world doing? Our world, our culture is striving for its own righteousness. Our world puts out its lip, says, I will be righteous. I will create my own identity of salvation. This world tight grips and tries to accomplish its own salvation. And one of the ways that it props up its flagging identity is to exclude people in the name of inclusion. To signal to the world how righteous they are. Well, I'm a part of this group, but you're not a part of this group. I'm this color of skin. Not that color of skin. I'm glad I'm not that color of skin. And everyone's talking about conversations about race. Oh, you're going to fix racial problems. Interesting. We'll, we'll have a conversation and we'll figure it out. It's like this world will figure out nothing as long as it's alienated from God. And it's not about conversations about race. It's about conversations of grace. It's about the church going into culture and saying, 
There is a righteousness that you can have that does not belong to you. It is something you receive by grace, and it is what brings true unity in relationships. But if you are legalistic and metallic, and you're going to fix those problems, you'll never have rest, ever. The church... Our message, our gospel, our redeemer, he does not tell us, well, I want you to go and fix all the systemic problems of culture. What he says is, don't let culture try to fix you. Jesus will fix you. Go and surrender to him and believe in him and trust in his righteousness. See, that's why the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament, that we are saved not by our righteousness, we are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I remember, I don't even know if I have a slide for this, but I thought about this passage, Isaiah 55, verses 6 and following, where Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Hallelujah, man. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. In other words, man, it's, man, it's surrendering to God that will bring you peace. You know, I was thinking about it. I'm spending too much time on this point, but write me an email, complain, I don't know. <laughs> what am I going to do? But you know, it's like my, it's no different. Every generation struggles with this very point, but in a different way. In a different way. You know, my grandfather's generation, the greatest generation, right? We believe that. My grandfather, man, they fought in World War II, man. They went through the Depression. They, like, they knew stuff. And, and, and his generation was all about, I just want to be good. I just want to be a good person. I want to be good. And I want people to look at me and say, there goes a very good man. He's a good man. And what we had to do as preachers, of course, I wasn't there. You're like, were you there? No, obviously not. But what we preachers said in our churches in those days is there's no one good. You, you still need forgiveness. Even if you fought Nazism, even if you survived the Depression, no one's good. Everybody needs forgiveness. And there's times when I wish that's all I had to say. I mean, it would be so awesome if that was our problem, but our problem has changed. My dad's generation, now, now that generation was all about like self-fulfillment because that's when psychology got real cool, you know what I mean? And like it was about the inner child, it was about self-fulfillment, and so my dad's generation got real materialistic and, you know, it was about having a BMW and being a yuppie and all that stuff because they're trying to find their inner child and being cool, you know what I mean? And we had to come to them and say, listen, only Jesus can bring fulfillment. Can I get an amen? Only Jesus. Your femur is not going to save you. Finding your inner child, it's not going to go well. But then our generation, my generation, it's about, <laughs> somebody said, uh-oh. For those online, 
We're having a very dynamic moment right now if you're online. I hope you're feeling it as you're eating your breakfast burrito. <laughs> My generation, it's all about creating yourself. You can make yourself whatever you want to be. You want to be a boy? You want to be a girl? You want whatever sexuality you want? Doesn't matter. You can create your whole self. In every single generation, it's the same principle because it's a tight grip. I'm going to save myself. And we don't make good saviors. It leaves us lost and restless. It leaves us empty and unfulfilled. And the gospel says, stop trying to save yourself and run to Jesus and give him your life and be reconciled with God. Because he has a righteousness for you that you cannot make, that you cannot create. That's the good news of God in a dark world. How do I rest in the Redeemer? I rest in his righteousness. But not only that. The second thing is, is I rest in his love. Let's go back to Ruth chapter 3. So it's like... What does Ruth, like what happens? Ruth is going to go to the threshing room floor, and what's going to happen? And so we pick it up in Ruth chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So she went down to the threshing room floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. I mean, you know, yeah. Well, I don't have enough time. Verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. At midnight, the man startled and turned over. We're going to find out the character of Boaz right here. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Now, a couple of things. Let me clean this up just a little bit. Because a couple of things, it's kind of like, well, now what's going on here? And so people have been like, oh, you know, they had sex there. Like, you know, commentaries and scholars think this, and it's like, no. And, and the reason why we know that that Ruth is not asking Boaz to have sex with her, to put it bluntly, is because she says in verse 9, the only thing that Naomi did not instruct her to say, but was a good thing to say, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, first of all, she's referring back to Ruth chapter 2, when Boaz said to her, oh, you've sought refuge under the wings of the Lord and she's using wisely by the way she's using that same language with Boaz and says not only am I 
seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord. I'm seeking refuge under your wings. And we're like, well, what's up with the wings thing? You know, like wings. It's obviously not buffalo wings. Like, what are we talking about here? And ultimately, the language of, of wings, which we could spend quite a bit of time on, but we're not going to, but there's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 16. I don't have a slide for this. Sorry, Jim. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. And it's God talking to Israel. And what God is doing is he's proposing marriage to Israel. And the way he proposes marriage to Israel is he uses the language of wings, which is covenant language, for marriage. And here's how it reads. You can just listen to it. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. This is God talking, the Lord. He says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into the covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Right? So what the Lord is doing, watch this now, this is good Bible teaching. So what's happening is, is the Lord is saying, I'm coming into the covenant of marriage with you, Israel. And I'm using the language of wings to cover your nakedness and to make a vow to you that through riches and poverty, through sickness and health, till death us do part, I am guaranteeing your future in a covenant that looks a lot like marriage. And when you take that language and you come back to Ruth, this Moabite woman who's learning the Bible rapidly, man, and she comes to Boaz at night, and what she's saying is like, look, man, I'm not interested in making love to you tonight. What I'm interested in doing is proposing to you that you propose to me that we get married. Can I get a hallelujah? Which, by the way, is what women do, guys. For any single men, that's what they do. They hint, they suggest, they propose, and then they make us think that we're actually proposing. That's what happens. And that's the way the rest of your marriage is going to go, by the way. Because they're going to go, oh, here's some food, and here's a little wine, and why don't you sleep a little bit? And they pat us on the belly and make us think we're the man. But you know, we might be the head of the house, but they are the neck that turns the head, our wives. Can I get a hallelujah? Now, now this is what's happening. Ruth is like, I know how to do this. I know how to get what I want. And she says to him, hey, I just want you to cover me in the wings of a covenant of marriage. I want your love. I want your love. We're like, man, right on. Right on. And by the way, for Christians, marriage is a covenant. It's a guarantee of the whole future, no matter what. We were at a wedding just last night, and it was beautiful. It was a Christ-centered wedding, and it was a wedding where you you say vows in the presence of God and you say to each other in marriage, I guarantee your future no matter what happens. That's what a covenant is. Like, this is great, but then there's the problem. And Boaz is like, awesome. Love the way you've done this and everyone knows that you're worthy and everybody knows I'm worthy and everybody knows that nothing is, is happening here that's, that's unseemly, like nothing's happening here. And, and that's great, but there's a relative closer than me. And we're like, no. Everybody say no. 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 He's like, there's somebody else who can marry you who's a closer relative. And that's a big conflict in the book because we've invested a lot into Boaz. 
We like his Scottish accent. We like everything about this guy. So we don't want another relative. We want Boaz. And I wondered about that for the longest time. I was like, man, that is so interesting. Like, why does the story have a relative that's closer than Boaz to Ruth? And then I figured it out. Took me a while, because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Took me a while, but here's why. Because love is not love unless it's a choice. And God doesn't want us to think that Boaz was obligated to love and marry Ruth because he wasn't. He did not have to marry Ruth. And he would be no less righteous. Can I get an amen? He would be no less holy. He would be no less of a worthy man. He would still be all of Boaz if he never marries Ruth. He has to decide. I will love her. I'll go through the problem of going to the gates and talking to the elders and talking to the closer relative and making sure that I make this deal go through because I want Ruth to know that I genuinely love her. Man, that is just, we could preach on that. While We could preach through lunch on that. Hallelujah. Because what it means is this, so important. This is rarely taught in churches anymore, and it's too bad. It really is too bad. Jesus does not have to love you. If Jesus redeemed absolutely no one, he would still be holy, righteous, Son of God. And that's why it's so powerful when we realize that he does love us because we know it's by choice. He chose to redeem me. He chose to call me by name. He chose me to pluck me out of darkness and put me into his light. I remember being young and going to church, and I went to a church. I was converted in a church that was, you know, Pretty charismatic. They got pretty fired up. You know what I mean? They were, hallelujah, you know, and they were dancing in the, you know. have you, anybody been to a church like that? They're cool churches, man. Like, it's awesome. And they got tambourines, and they're going up and down. I love them. It's, I miss it sometimes. I mean, it's really great. And, and, and they get all excited, but one of the lines that was always spoken in our church that got everybody all kinds of fired up is, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And everybody be like, hallelujah! You know, and they'd start dancing and tithing to the church. And I went, when I first went into ministry, I was like, if I say that all the time, we will meet budget every year. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And it comes from a proverb. And the proverb is Proverbs 18, verse 24. It says, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I never understood what that meant. Like, I was always like, like, I grew up with two big brothers, and, like, you can't get closer than brothers. Like, brothers got each other's back. You know what I mean? Even if we can't stand each other sometimes, we still got each other's back. How can you be closer than a brother? And then I realized, a brother has to love you. Your brother has to love you. Your brother has to have your back. Your brother has to protect you. Your brother has to be for you. Your brother's got no choice, but the friend that sticks closer to you than a brother is somebody who says, I choose to be your friend even when I don't have to. Jesus is my friend. And he loves me. 
And his love for me, beloved, it's, it's not based on me. His love for me originates in him. And you're like, well, why does that give you rest? The reason why that gives me rest is because when I'm walking through the fires of life, I know he's with me. When I fail and fall down, I know he's going to pick me up. When I sin against God, I know he's going to forgive me. Because the love that God has for me in Jesus is not originating in me. It originates in him and his character. That's why I don't even know if I have a slide for this. But Isaiah 43 verses 1 and 2. Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. You see that? You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, don't base whether God loves you or not, whether you're going through good times or bad. Base whether God loves you on who he is and what he's done to redeem you. Can I get an amen? And you might be going through the worst situation right now in your life. You might be sick or out of a job, or maybe somebody's bothering you like crazy. Maybe you've got an enemy. But listen, you are blessed because God redeems you, and he walks with you through those waters and through those fires. God's love for you is based on his decision to redeem you. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you can rest in his love for you. Rest in his love. Rest in his love. Had another passage. That's right. Zephaniah. You're like, it's lunchtime. I don't care. I'm having too much fun right now. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 17. Listen to this. This is God, your Redeemer, the one who loves you. Rest in his love. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach that's God's love that's redeeming love that's what we have in Christ that's what we have in Christ well as I say well so how do I rest in the Redeemer well I rest in his righteousness first the second thing is I rest in his love for me but the third thing is this I rest in the hope he gives to me I rest in hope I rest in hope Come back and let me just finish out this chapter. Ruth chapter 3, verses 14 and following. It says, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he's telling his boys, he's already got a sexual harassment policy on his fields, and he's also got a purity policy on his fields. Like, ain't no prostitutes coming to Boaz's barns in his fields. That's just not going to happen with Boaz. But he tells his boys, he's like, don't be telling people that she came here tonight because then people will get the wrong idea. Verse 15. 
And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So he gives her another Costco gift card, which is nice. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, wait, circle that word, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Wait, how do I rest in the Redeemer? I wait. You see, here's the thing. Boaz gives her a promise. I'm going to go square this away. And I'm going to give you a little bit of grain so you can go back and have a nice meal with Naomi. And, and Naomi says to Ruth, wait. Because you know Ruth is like, oh my gosh, there's a closer relative. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm sorry I did that. We're almost done, man. Oh, no. And, and Naomi's like, Ruth, calm down. So that's what church is, man. Church is like we come and we calm down. And the message of the church is wait. Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, greatest preacher of the 20th century, he said it like this. He said, we only experience a little bit of our salvation in this life. We just get a little bit of taste of the Holy Spirit. We just get a, a little bit of taste of this salvation. We're just, we're just getting a little bit of the appetizer of the really big meal to come in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a little bit of grain. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a community. I'm going to give you a Bible. I'm going to give you a church. I'm going to give you a mission. But believe you me, when I come back, I'm going to bring the whole thing. And your job is to wait in hope. Your job is to remember that everything God's going to do for you is not even close to going to happen to your life in this life. Not even close just a little taste, a little bit of grain, enough Costco to get us by. And spiritual discipline is like, this ain't my salvation, man. Like, like this thing is, this is just a little bit of it. And that's so important in culture, too, because what culture is doing is like, culture comes to us and says, we got to fix all these problems right now. We got to bring the kingdom of God right now. We need everything perfect right now. And it's a, it's a bitter thing. And you know what the message of the gospel is? Wait. Put down your hands a little bit. Rest. Because there is a day when there's not going to be sickness anymore. And there is a day when we're not going to weep anymore. And there is a day when we're not going to have to worry about pandemics anymore. And there is a day when we're not going to have to worry about social injustice anymore. And there is a day when all that's going to happen. And the grain that we've been given happens at the cross, in the resurrection, and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. How do I rest in the Redeemer? I rest in his righteousness, I rest in his love, and I rest in the hope that he gives to me. I got to stop there. We'll pick it up. Well, next week is Easter. We're going to talk about resurrection. And then after that, we'll come back and we'll finish up Ruth. So rest in your Redeemer this week. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for helping me get through that chapter today, and 
just pray that you would cause this message to dwell in us richly. Father, I pray for anyone who's not given their life to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that your Holy Spirit would awaken them to the truth of his redeeming love, and that you would help them to fall at his feet, believing in him, calling on him to be their Savior and Lord. Call whatever man or woman, boy or girl, that doesn't know Jesus to believe in Jesus today. And Lord, let us know of that harvest. Father, as a church, help us to be like Naomi. We're, we're kind of like Naomi as a church, God. We're kind of broken and, 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 and we've been put back together, but there's still cracks in our lives. And we're kind of, we're people who have learned what it means to be broken but not defeated. We, we've learned what it means to be wounded by life, but to be healed by your forgiveness and righteousness. So help us to be like Naomi, where as a church, we tell people, this is where you can find rest. You can find rest in the name of Jesus. Lord, bring revival in our church and our community of this message of the righteousness of Jesus, of the love of Jesus, and of the hope that Jesus gives to all of his people. And we bring that to our church. Make the tabernacle a place where people find rest in the Redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.